We're looking this morning in Isaiah 53 at the subject of the suffering servant of Jehovah. And if you look at your bulletin outline, we're looking firstly that this was God's redemptive plan. What I want to talk to you about, first of all, is the importance of Isaiah 53. This passage of scripture is the most quoted or referred to passage in Isaiah that we find in the New Testament. I counted 58 cross-references in the New Testament in my study Bible, and there are undoubtedly many more than that. Going back to this one chapter in the Old Testament. This is the passage from which the Ethiopian official was reading in his chariot ride back to Alexandria, Egypt, when Philip joined himself to the chariot, and the, and the Ethiopian said, I'm reading from this text, who is the author writing about, himself or somebody else? And from that text in Isaiah 53, Philip taught him about Jesus Christ. And that official became a believer. And as they journeyed on that road, they came to a place of water. And Philip, he asked Philip to baptize him, which he did. And then he continued on his journey rejoicing and praising God. Acts 8, you can read about the whole account in Acts 8. It is believed that this official who was from the official uh, kingdom in Egypt, went back and shared the gospel, and we have the founding of the church in Alexandria from his ministry. So we cannot overestimate the value of Isaiah 53 and the impact that it has, and that it has had upon the lives of many, many people. Its relationship to our present study is significant because it foretells yet another aspect of the coming king's ministry. And we have been studying these. Isaiah has given us prophecies concerning the virgin conception of Jesus, Isaiah 14, his life as a child, Isaiah 9, his being the royal line of King David, also Isaiah 9, and chapter 11 as well, his coming again in power and great glory, Isaiah 11, and now he foretells of his suffering for the sins of his people. The detail given here is undeniably connected with Jesus' crucifixion. What is more, it rules out completely anyone. Jesus' earthly parents, Jesus' disciples, Jesus himself. It rules out completely anyone orchestrating circumstances to fit into the Old Testament prophecies to make it look like Jesus was the promised Messiah. That accusation has been made a number of times. Well, you know, when we talk about fulfilled prophecy, all Jesus and his disciples had to do is be good students of the Old Testament, and then they had Jesus do the things that the Old Testament said he would do, and so it was all orchestrated, not really fulfilled prophecy. Let me say that no one in his right mind would deliberately choose this path, Isaiah 53, this path of pain and suffering to travel 
just to give the appearance of being the suffering servant whom Isaiah describes. How absurd is that? Rather, it is only under divine initiative and constraint that a person would willingly consent to such an atrocious and hideous way to be treated by one's fellow man and to die in such a shameful and ignoble way. No one would relish going to the cross and being treated as Jesus was treated just so he could say, see, I'm the guy from Isaiah 53. There is a mission here, all right. <laughs> That's true. But it is not a mission of fraud and deception, but rather a mission for the servant of God, from God himself, and to do God's will involve the tortures described here as Jesus became the sin bearer for his people. Now we need to look, secondly here, at the broad picture. As we try to study this involved prophecy and to understand its rich meaning, it may be wise to look at the text in terms of grouping certain of its verses together. Thematically, that is, as Isaiah describes different aspects of the suffering servant's ministry and work. Actually, Isaiah begins with a general overview at the close of chapter 52. So if you have your Bibles there, you're open to Isaiah 53. Just go back a few verses there to Isaiah 52 and read from verse 13. There we read, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Now the pattern here in this latter part of Isaiah 52 is this. Exaltation, verse 13, just as previously he was abased, verse 14, with the result, verse 15, Many nations will be redeemed and the rebellious kings will be silenced and nullified when they finally see him for whom and what he truly is. Now that's the sweeping overview which incorporates Jesus' first coming, his ministry of suffering with his second coming and his final exaltation in those few verses, verses 13 through 15. Well... Coming then to chapter 53 of Isaiah, we see these same elements, but in much more detail. And frankly, it is in the detail which permits us to peer into the mind and heart of our Lord as he endured these things. And what is more, we get to see the Father's plan in all this and the role that he played in this tremendous historical event. So what I hope to do this morning is to scan some of the details and to plug them into the New Testament passages which identify these events with the life of Christ. 
This will show the inseparable connection between prophecy and fulfillment. Isaiah, by God's will and work, predicting the future some 700 years before it happened. And then Jesus, fulfilling in his life and ministry what God had foretold about him. This is some of the strongest evidence that we have of the integrity of the scripture being the very word of God. For only God knows what he himself will do or allow to be done in future days, seven centuries into the future. Wow. Think about that. That brings us then in our bulletin outline there to the suffering servant of God. And firstly, Jesus' birth and entrance into the world. What do we read? Who has believed our message? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 1. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a shoot out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now here we have reference, do we not, to the same way in which Isaiah has been describing Messiah's coming all along. Grew up as a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground is not, is not materially different from what we studied in Isaiah 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, stump being something dead or looks dead. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Isaiah 11, verse 1. In other words, when all seemed lost for the Davidic dynasty, when nothing was left of David's royal line except a stump or dry, lifeless, moisture-deficient ground, a shoot came up. A shoot came up. God can do marvelous things. If any of you have seen the movie, um, it's called A Walk in the Clouds. It's the story of an Italian family which had a vast vineyard in the Napa Valley in California. And the entire vineyard was reproduced from one rootstock that they had brought from Italy. In the course of the film, a terrible and devastating fire broke out in the valley, which spread like wildfire and completely wiped out the entire vineyard. There wasn't a green vine left. Everything was consumed and all that was left was the blackened and scorched earth. Then someone remembered, remembered the original vine, which had been segregated in an, elevant, an elevated quadrant of the vineyard, and while the fire had scorched off all the leaves of that mother vine, the root was untouched. It was still green. It was still alive. It was still viable. Still able to reproduce. And the whole film closes with a picturesque view of the Napa vineyard completely rejuvenated with lush green vines in row after row as far as the eye can see that came off of that one root stock. Well, in similar fashion, David's dynasty lay in dust and ruin. 
Nothing was left in of it except a parched land with one remaining stump of a tree. But from that stump out of the dry land, a shoot sprung up. There was life again, and though it was a tender shoot, it grew to maturity. Now we know Isaiah is really describing a person, not a tree. And so he reminds us that this person had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, verse 2. In fact, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. This is a general statement, which is true. Think about this. The people of Jesus' day certainly liked him for the things he could do for them. The healings, you remember those? The exorcisms of demons, he had power over the devil and the demons. The restoration of sight to the blind, the restoration of hearing to the deaf. The food he miraculously provided for them on a number of occasions, feeding 5,000 on one occasion, 4,000 on another occasion. They liked Jesus for what he could do for them. But when the handouts were curtailed and they began to understand Jesus' teachings, many deserted him. John 6 verse 66 says, And no longer followed him. Ah, there you have it. Remember as well that there was a crowd of people, a crowd of people, who cried out to Pilate, Crucify him! Crucify him! And when Pilate offered to release a prisoner to the people, with one voice they cried out, Away with him! Release Barabbas to us! Luke 23, verse 18. What is this? He was despised and rejected of men. And John tells us in our study of John, he came unto his own and his own refused to accept him. And as for the religious and political leaders of Jesus' day, they never did like Jesus. (laughs) I mean, not from day one. Yes, there are exceptions. We have Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, both Pharisees who became believers and followers of Christ. But for the most part, it was the Pharisees, along with the chief priests, Annas, Caiaphas, the scribes, who plotted and orchestrated the arrest and execution of Jesus. It was this group who paid Judas his asking price of 30 pieces of silver. And it was this group who convinced Pilate to dispatch a band of soldiers to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus, John 18. Religious leaders were at odds against him from day one. The scripture says that Pilate knew that it was out of envy that these religious leaders had handed Jesus over to him. It was religious politics, just like we have in our day. Cut the other guy's throat. He's getting too popular. We're losing our popularity. Unlike a believer's heart, 
when John the Baptist's disciples said something very similar to him. You know, John, that guy there over on the Jordan, he's getting more popular than you. You're losing disciples to him. And John says, oh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. That's a great thing. He must increase. I must decrease. I've only come to tell people about him. So I'm glad that all the attention is going his way. And my popularity is waning. Is waning. Now the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus was fully apprised of the suffering that he would endure. Surprise, surprise has nothing to do with Jesus' own assessment of why he had come. Matthew 16, verse 21, From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. This is Jesus talking to his disciples before the events occur. And he's explaining to them, this is why I've come. This is what's going to happen. You know, and they were upset by hearing this news. They never anticipated that. But he tells them that. Luke's account gives even more detail. Let me read it for you. Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We're going up to Jerusalem. And everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. So now, we're, now he knows about Pilate, doesn't he? He knows about what the Roman government's going to do. He will be turned over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. Luke 18, 31 through 33. Jesus knew what his destiny was. Be it from his own people the religious leaders of his day, or the Gentile government, Rome, of his day. Now we normally think of Christ's suffering as confined to his cross experience. But the writer of Hebrews indicates that like all of us human beings living in a cursed world, suffering was very much a part of his education as he grew up. Let me read it. Although he was a son... He learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal life for all who obey him. Hebrews 5 verse 8. We think of some of his childhood sufferings. Born in a rudimentary stable that housed animals and his crib was a stall. His flight to Egypt to escape the slaughter that Herod had for the boys of Bethlehem. His return to live and minister basically in Nazareth because the people of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom were not up to listening to him and receiving him. There was, of course, a goal in the mind of Christ in enduring all of this. And here it is in the, written for us in Hebrews 2. Since the children, he's talking about his children, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death 
he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of his people. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and following. And that atonement was not through the offering up of an animal sacrifice, but by the offering up of himself as the once for all final and perfect sacrifice. And that brings us to the second point here, atonement. That's the next group of verses in our text in which Isaiah predicted how the sacrifice of the servant would occur and what it would accomplish. First thing that Isaiah brings out is that this is a work of substitution. Y'all know what substitution is. Somebody stands in for, is substituted for, another person. We know this in sports, especially in basketball all the time. You know, the coach is always doing this. He's bringing somebody in to substitute. Football, same thing. Uh, bring somebody in that got, someone got hurt, or maybe they're just tired, or maybe he wants to send in a different play. He sends a substitute out that, for that position and so on. It's work of substitution. Look at verse 4 of our text. Surely he took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Verse 5. He was pierced, verse 6, for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. These texts are all substitution here. We get no idea that this suffering is somehow something Jesus deserved as his due and just payment for his own wicked lifestyle. There's not a hint of that here. No, all the way through these verses, Isaiah refers to our, us, we. Which shows that he saw the servant of Jehovah undergoing these atrocities as a stand-in for the really guilty parties. And he returns to this theme in verse 8. He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people was he stricken. As to Jesus' own life and deeds, what can be said about him? Verse 9. He had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Let us not assume that being human and being a sinner are synonymous it was not so with the original Adam, and it was not so with him who is called the last Adam, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. Sin entered the human race through Adam's transgression, 
And all of us sins because we are biologically and spiritually related to Adam, the sinner, and possess the sin nature, which evidences itself in sinful behavior. But Jesus' father was not Adam. It was the Holy Spirit, not anyone human. And while his mother Mary contributed a human body to his spirit, his nature was pristine and pure, being very God encased within a human body. This is why the Bible talks of Jesus' sacrifice as a substitute, but is careful to clarify that his suffering was not for any personal sin on his part. There are many scriptures on this. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Wasn't a sinner, but God made him to be sin. Or again, Hebrews 4.15, We have a high priest who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Temptation is not sin. Giving in to temptation is sin. So Jesus was tempted as we were, but without sin because he did not succumb. Again, Hebrews 7, 26. Such a high priest meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. And then 1 John 3, verse 5. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. And in him is no sin. So here again we see emphasis on substitution. Christ came to take away our sins, says John. Yet in his own person there was no sin. That is exactly Isaiah's prediction in his use of the pronouns our, us, and we. So we ask the question, us who? Did Christ suffer and die and act as a stand-in, as a substitute sinner for every sinful human being on earth? Or was his suffering for those only who would believe in him and renounce their sin through repentance? Well, the answer to this question has its proponents on both sides of the issue. Some would say, well, yes, of course, Jesus suffered the cross for every last human being on the earth. This group believes in a universal atonement, which makes salvation possible as a provision of sinners, which men must tap into to receive its effects and blessings. They tap into it by exercising their own faith. The other group says no, Jesus did not suffer the cross for every last human being on earth, but for those only who would in time repent of their sin and trust Christ's work to save them. This group believes in a particular redemption or an an atonement which is confined to those only who will respond 
in a positive way to the call of the gospel when they hear it. The response of repentance and faith are not of the sinner's own doing. These are themselves the gifts of God to his people. Now, there's your two sides. And one could scarcely find two more opposite positions on the nature of Christ's suffering. Say, who cares? Well, you should care. You should. Makes a difference, all the difference in the world, how we present the gospel and what we say to sinners who hear the gospel in terms of their response. To discover the answer is not so difficult if we just follow the context of Isaiah's statements. Remember context, context, context? That's the rule of interpreting scripture. As noted, he speaks of our, us, we, as the recipients of Christ's substitutionary work. It is our infirmities Jesus took upon his sails, our sorrows he carried, our transgressions for which he was pierced, verse 4 and following. But who are the our, the us, and the we? Is it anyone who picks up the book of Isaiah to read it? Did the Assyrians read the book of Isaiah? Did the Babylonians read the book of Isaiah? How about the Greeks, or in later history, the Romans? Did they read the book of Isaiah? Did they believe in and worship Jehovah? The answer to all these questions is a resounding no, 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 a thousand times no. These other nations were pagans. They had nothing to do with God, the God of Scripture. And what is more, Isaiah is identified with the people to whom he writes. He says, our, us, we. He's including himself. So that can only mean the people of God. In his day, that was Israel as a nation. So we can start off by defining those for whom Christ died as belonging to the elect people of God, which in Isaiah's day had its fulfillment in the Jewish people. Okay, so far so good. But is the elect people of God confined, indeed always identified, with the Jewish people alone? If so, then all we could say in conclusion would be that Jesus died for the Jews alone and there's no salvation for any non-Jews. Almost sounds kind of like the Jewish position today. Not the Christian position, but the Jewish position. End of story, end of hope. Might as well go home, live as you please, because if you're not Jewish in ancestry, there's no substitute dying for you. You'll have to suffer the consequences of your own sin. But, but, when we come to the New Testament, however, we note that this is not the end of the story, but really, just the beginning. God started out with an elect nation, Israel. But that nation was a pattern for the people of God who would later comprise the kingdom of God from all nationalities, from all walks of life, regardless of physical ancestry. 
Say, well, you're just dreaming this up. No, no. I'm going to read to you from Paul, a Jew, a rabbi, one who taught the law and knew Isaiah inside and out, certainly better than you or me. And here's what he writes. Paul writes, a man is not a Jew if he is only one outwardly. Nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, I'm still reading scripture. A man is a Jew if he's one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit. Spirit is capitalized, Holy Spirit. Not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men who can do physical circumcision, but from God who alone can do the spiritual revival. Romans 3 verse 28. So we learn here that being Jewish in the New Testament motif has to do with being circumcised of heart, wherein the Spirit of God cuts away the sinfulness of our nature and makes us clean before God. We'll say that's only one, one text. Oh no, this is written many times in the New Testament. Chapter 4 of the book of Romans. Paul tells us that Abraham, the acknowledged head of the Jewish nation, of the Jewish nation now, listen to this, was counted a believer before he was ever circumcised. And we might think, so what? I mean, what, what's that got to do with anything? Paul explains. So then... He, Abraham, is the father of all who believe, including those who have not been circumcised, verse 11. And so here, Gentiles are thought of as Abraham's descendants and not just physical Jews. Well, there's a light bulb that needs to come on in our understanding. Oh, wait a minute here. Looks like God had a purpose for the Jews as a nation. And, and then with Abraham, not only for Abraham to be the father and progenitor of the Jews, but the father and progenitor of all believers. We have it again in Galatians 3 verse 8. Here's what it says. Paul's writing. The scripture, and Isaiah 53 would be one of these, the scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to, next word, Abraham. What? So those who have faith, I'm still reading scripture, are blessed with Abraham, the man of faith. We have a shift here from the symbol to the reality, from the shadow to the substance. What am I saying? This. Israel, the chosen nation, was the Old Testament symbol of the people of God who would comprise the church, the bride of Christ, chosen from every nation, every language, every tribe. You have it. Revelation 7 verse 9. 
Thus to Christians of the New Testament, to people of the Gentile churches of Galatia of all places, he writes, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Galatians 6, verse 16. The atonement is a work of substitution where Christ stands in for his people. And you have to define his people, meaning more than just Jews by physical ancestry, but really Jews in heart, circumcision of heart, Jews by faith in the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now having said that, God himself, we're still trying to figure out what is meant by our, us, and we, God himself has imposed a limitation. You say, well, I see the change from God working with Israel as the elect nation to many Gentile nations as the elect bride of Christ, but this seems like a rather convoluted way to arrive at the conclusion that the work of Christ on the cross was to atone for the sins of only some people and not all people. Well, we have greater textual evidence beyond the pronouns us, our, and we. We don't have to build all that we're saying on pronouns, although every word of scripture is inspired. So us, our, and we are in the book, and they're in this chapter, and we have to define who the us, our, and we are. Not only does Isaiah use the pronouns our, us, and we to identify himself with a people who have been singled out by God for the benefits of Jesus' substitutionary death, but he gives, goes on to give us, to show us, that God imposed limitations of Jesus' work. You're in Isaiah 53, look at verse 11. After the suffering of his soul, speaking of Christ, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, Jesus, will justify, look at the next word, will justify many, and he will bear, next word, their iniquities. Many, their iniquities. Many, not all. Whose iniquities will Jesus pay or bear for? Their iniquities. Whose iniquities? The many's iniquities. Again, look at verse 12. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Now these statements of limitation, you say, wow, you're reading a lot. No, it's right there in the text for you to read. This, this agrees with Jesus' own words, his own words in Matthew 20, verse 28. Here, let me read it for you. The Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, that's his favorite title for himself, by the way, Son of Man, identifying with humanity. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom, next words, for many. See how it agrees with Isaiah? Conclusion from scripture is that Jesus did not die 
for the sins of every last person on earth, but rather for the sins of his people, those who do now or in time will repent of their sin and trust Jesus as their substitute. Brethren, just in simple language, that's why all men are not saved. Think about this. If Christ actually paid the debt of all sinners to God's broken law, then his blood would cover their iniquity and their sins would be forgiven. End of judgment, end of hell, end of the, it would be the mitigation of, of God's wrath yet to come. But you know, Jesus taught more on hell than he did on heaven because it is a reality. And this explains how Christ can say, as he does say, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he gives me. John 6, verse 37 and following. Jesus is explaining there's a limitation in God's salvation. And for this reason, same text, John 6, Jesus put a stop to the grumblers and those entrenched in their unbelief, in their unbelief, saying to them, these are his words, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I'll raise him up in the last day. John 6 verse 44. It says something very similar in verse 65. Same chapter. John 6. He went on to say. This is why I told you. That no one can come to me. Unless the father has enabled him. The context shows that after Jesus had taught concerning his sacrifice. Many of the disciples began to walk away from him. And no longer followed him. So he says. This is what I was saying guys. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Now the truth being taught here is fully compatible with what Isaiah is predicting about the selective nature of Christ's suffering and substitution. The faith by which a man lays hold of Christ is not his own faith. That is, it does not originate from within the human heart. The human heart's full of sin. Spiritual faith is not a natural occurring trait. We hate God. We run away from God. We want nothing to do with Him. We argue with God. We think we know more than God. That's the human heart. That's human faith. Believe in yourself. How many times? I'm so sick of hearing that. Teachers say that to students. Football coaches say it to their school. Believe in yourself. You can get out there. You can do anything you put your mind to. Da, 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 da. That's human faith. But the faith that is spiritual, the faith that grabs hold of Christ, is a gift of God to whomever he chooses to give it. You are beholden to Christ, to God, even to believe. Let me read it for you. Paul writes, Faith comes by hearing the gospel message. That's why you need to hear gospel preaching like you're hearing this morning. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. Romans 10 verse 17. 
Not all who hear the gospel respond in faith. Some walk away. They walk away in unbelief. Why? Because faith, the kind of faith that hangs on to Christ and wants Christ and approaches Christ and confesses to Christ, that kind of faith is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship. How true. There is no self-made man or woman in the kingdom of Christ. And I've had some arguments with people on this. They say, well, you know, I know salvation is by grace. But I had to believe. But I had to believe. But I had to believe. And that's the way they talk. And what they're saying is, God might have done this and this and this, and Jesus might have done this on the cross for me, and this and this and this, but I had to believe. Really? We are the products of God's grace to us, not only in sending His Son to bear the sins of His people, but in giving us who were chosen the ability to repent and to believe. Repentance Acts 11, verse 18, is the gift of God, but so is faith. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13, From the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and through belief in the truth. God has chosen you to believe. Say, what are you saying? I'm saying this. Salvation is not by accident. It is not by accident. It's on purpose. It's not you seeking God. It's God seeking you. And Isaiah prophesied that a Savior would come to take the infirmities and the iniquities and the sorrows of many upon himself so that he could be brought into, we could be brought into forgiveness and peace with God. Has this happened with you? Has it? Has God found you? Have you heard his voice convicting you? What is conviction? Among other things, it's God's call to you to repent and believe. It's God seeking you. The beauty of God's saving faith and gift of repentance is that the gifts and calling of God, writes the scripture, are without repentance. You say, well, what's that mean? It means if God sets his sights on you, you will come to repentance and faith. He won't change his mind. Well, what if I do? Well, he doesn't know. He knows everything about you. All the wicked thoughts and deeds you've done from day one. We are nothing more than sinners saved by his grace. And grace means he gets to choose. Not us. Say, well, do we have to repent? Yes. Do we have to believe? Yes. 
There is no salvation apart from repentance of your sins and faith in Christ. But when you think repentance and you think faith, don't separate them from the grace of God. Those things are part of his grace and his salvation. God doing his work. And Jesus says, all that the Father gives me, they're going to come. Not in doubt, they're coming. I lay down my life for the sheep. How clear is that? None, listen to this, none for whom Christ died will ever be lost in hell. None. Zero. That's the power of our King and our God to save. I'm so glad because my sins, black as they are, would damn me to an eternity in hell forever and ever and ever were it not for the grace of God the calling of God the drawing of God the gifts of repentance and faith and does it make me hate God for his selectivity it makes me wonder at God why me it makes me rejoice in Christ what a savior my message to you is if you hear God's calling today if you hear his calling Paul says, don't harden your heart. That's it. That's him knocking at the door of your life and saying, I'm calling. I'm pleading with you to come. Hear his voice. Isaiah says, Lord, who's believed our report? In his day, he could say, not many. In our day, we could say, not many. But to many, to those that did receive him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. That's what we're learning on Sunday night. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the drawing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the gospel predicted in Isaiah that he was going to have a people and all the gates of hell would not prevail against that plan of God. I thank you for Jesus' words in John 6. That even in our belligerence, even in uh, the hatred of our heart, even in the stubbornness, and boy are we stubborn with regard to our sin. We love it and we don't want to give it up. And we know that coming to Christ will require that our life change. And we're not all in favor of our life changing. We like what we do and how we live. And a life of holiness just doesn't sound very appetizing. By your grace, you change our will, you change our hearts, you change our thinking. You draw us to yourself, screaming and kicking as it might be. You grant us what we don't want. You give us what we need, but don't think we need. And we come to Christ believing what before we would never have believed. Convict us, Lord, for those that don't know Christ. May this be their day of reckoning with you. May you find them. It isn't a question of them seeking you. It's you seeking them. May you add to your numbers this day. May you defeat Satan once again, bringing a child of, out of darkness, the kingdom of darkness, into your glorious kingdom of light. For the praise and honor of Jesus our Savior, we pray these things with thanksgiving. Amen.